0: Welcome to the Sunday Morning Podcast from Kingdom Faith Church in Horsham. This message is by Colin Squires. Good morning, and a very warm welcome to, uh, to everyone in Crawley. Joined us, I, know, I think you got a couple of notices twice. Apologies, but good morning, and everyone across who's watching the stream, and uh, and of course, good morning Horsham. For any of those of you who don't know me, my name is Colin, and, and my lovely wife uh, and I we lead this congregation. Um, And uh, I'm really excited for what God wants to say this morning. Um, So excited that uh, I I was so just determined. God, I know you've spoken and this is what you want to communicate. But it just seems to be so difficult getting it all together that I've written this morning's message three times. Uh, (laughs) But I I, I believe that God really wants to speak and share something of his heart with us this morning. Amen. Amen. So we're going to pray. First of all, Jesus, uh, we pray again, Jesus. Father, thank you for absolutely none of Colin this morning. Colin can just fall by the wayside. And Jesus, would you speak all of your words that you want to speak? May they not fall to the floor, but may they do what you have set them out to accomplish. And Jesus, may they rest upon our hearts. And Jesus, I thank you that through your word and what you say today, lives get changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Right now, unless you've been living under a rock on a cave on Mars the last few months, you probably know that we are in a series on Romans. And uh, Pastor Clive and Kevin the last two weeks have brought a couple of amazing words about uh, what it means to stand as one and move as one. And if we recommended everyone go back and re-listen to every word, we would would never get anything done, would we? But these are honestly exceptional. I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to them again. Fantastic messages that, that God really spoke through. And today, we're looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. And if you haven't got a Bible, please bring one. While we're going through this, ser- this sermon series on Romans, please bring one. When you have your, a physical Bible open, you can see everything on the page and where you're going. It just clicks so much better. If you've got one on your phone, that'll do for now. But I encourage you, get one out yourself right now and, and follow with me. So we're, um, we're looking at Romans 6. And so, of course course we're going to start with Luke 15. Um, <laughs> now if Kevin could look at the book of Numbers a couple of weeks ago I think the New Testament's all right. We're going to start with a story and this story is going to, it's a well-known story but it's going to link into everything that I believe that God wants to say to us this morning. Now Luke 15 we're looking particularly at the parable of the prodigal son. Now you've probably heard this many many times but this morning we want to really we want to live in it. We want to picture it. We want to be there alongside the prodigal son on his story and really understand it. Use our God-given imaginations to just picture it. So we're going to fill it out a bit. And not everything I'm going to share is, is, is as it's described in the Bible. We're going to use a little bit of imagination to explore this a little bit. And it starts with this son. This son, he lives in a big, beautiful, rather expensive and impressive house. His father is a very wealthy, very kind, very good, hard-working man. He's uh, lived with his brother, um, who is a very, you know, he's a very diligent son. He's the one who's always up early, out in the fields with the servants and just getting on with things. He's always back in time for everything. He's, you know, he's the responsible one. But our son, the son we're talking about... He's not quite so much like that. He's a little bit of the lazy one. He's the one who's often shirking his responsibilities. He's the one who, when he's given a chore, I'm, oh, Dad, really? You know, he's the he's this little bit moany one. Like my brother, I'm the older brother in in the, this picture. I was never the moany one. <laughs> um, and uh, and so this this brother, he's the one who's often late out of bed. You know, one morning the servant comes and knocks on his door, and he says, um, "Master, it's it's it's." way past breakfast, it's time for you to get up. Your father's asked me to come and wake you and the son lying in bed, you know, still in his clothes from the night before, picks off his sandal and throws it at the door and like, leave me alone. I want another lion, give me another hour. And then, uh, oh, and by the way, okay, so but your father's asked you to just make the bed when you're, when you're done, um, just just that would be great. And he says, you know, well, make it yourself. Why have I even got servants? And uh, so he rolls out of bed, doesn't bother making it, and he goes downstairs. And he's just fed up with this way of life. There's, though he's got all this extravagance, this beautiful home, this loving family, father and a brother who love him, he's just, he's just fed up. And so he has this idea to himself. He says, hold on, one day when my father dies, I will inherit half of this fortune. And then I can go and do whatever I want with it. But why wait? Why wait till he becomes old and passes away? I know, I'll ask him for it now. Now, anyone who's a parent here, would anyone just be you know, so encouraged if your kids came and said, I was wondering, um, I was just kind of hoping maybe you could just die now so I can have all your stuff. Oh, that'd just be so, maybe, maybe put that in a Father's Day card next year, you know, oh, how loving. But this father, he's not offended, he's not upset. He says, okay, everything that I have is yours, And so he gives him his inheritance and this son, straight away, he packs up his bags and he heads off. Actually, the Bible says not quite straight away. It was a little bit of time. But nevertheless, he's spending his money around. He's partying. He goes, I'm bored. I want more adventure. And he packs up his bag and he goes to a diff- distant country. And on his first night there, he's still got his travelling coat on. He walks into a tavern and, uh, and Mary, maybe we should call her, comes up to her or whatever her name is and, and she uh, kisses him and says, call me and slips in slips his number, uh, her number written on a napkin. I'm not sure if bars were quite like that in the first century, who knows, but bear with it for the sake of the story. And he puts it into his pocket and he's thinking, yeah, this is more like it, my kind of town. And it says that he gets caught up in all of this Revelry. There's drunken. There's you know the girls, the booze, drugs, the clothes, the lifestyle, the partying. He's spending all of his money on this, and uh, and pretty soon he's burnt through it all. And I'm sure many of us probably aren't really following all of the, the the media circuits going on around Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and all that kind of thing. But I did happen to see a headline that said at one point Johnny Depp was spending three hundred thousand dollars a month on full-time staff. It's just like wow, that's a different world. And this guy, he was just throwing money around left, right and center, till he burns through it all. Shortly later, there is a famine in the land. Everyone's pulling their belt in. No one is giving work anymore. There are no more checks to live from week to week, spending it all on the, on the booze and the girls and everything else anymore. And he finds himself really struggling to get a job. And he gets the only job that he can find. Maybe he's going back to his, a bit of his roots and goes, well, I've got some skills around farming, having grown up where I did, I'll see if I can go get a job with a swine herder, with a pig farmer. And he goes and gets this job, working, giving the pigs, the, the pig swill, the pods, this, this filth that the pigs were eating. And, uh, and it says that he asked if he could have some. And, uh, and, and he, he couldn't even have this. And it was this moment where he's looking at the pig swill and he's so hungry and he's so destitute and he's so at the end of himself that he's looking at this pig swill and thinking, I'm, I wanna eat this, I have nothing, I'm gonna eat this. But it says in that moment, he came to his senses and he realized even my father's hired servants have food to spare. Mm. Perhaps if I go home and I say to my father, I'm so sorry, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. Please, would you take me back? Just make me like one of your servants. I'll work for you. And this moment he comes to his senses. He packs up his bags and he starts going home. We can only imagine what's going through his mind as he comes home. Will he accept me? Will he take me as I am? After all I've done, I've wasted... Not only have I told him I wish you were dead, but I've taken his money. I've spent it. Maybe I've ruined him. Will there even be a home to go back to? Will he take me? And of course, we know the story. He comes back and and from afar, the father has been watching and waiting to see him, this loving father, sees him at a distance and he runs to him. And what does he say? What he doesn't say is... It's about time you're back do you expect to come back in here after all you've done you have lied you've cheated you've stolen you've squandered look at your brother he's so much better than you you've not been living up to your family name you've let me down you let yourself down you know he doesn't go through his list of things he doesn't say and you expect to come back and live in my house no you can sleep here on the street until you pay back every single penny that wasn't his response if it was What do you think the son might have felt? Shame, Shame, of course. He would have thought, I'm never gonna be able to pay it back. I know I've done wrong. I'm now even more aware of it because of how you've you've put it out like that, but I can't do anything about it. I know I'm never gonna be able to earn this money back. I've never really worked a day in my life. I don't really have any skills. There's nothing I can do to earn back this place in my home. Probably he would go, well, I'm either just gonna lie down here and die, Or maybe I'll I'll call Mary (laughs) and gone back to where he was before. But that wasn't the response of the father. The response of the father was to throw his arms around his son, to kiss him and say, my son who is dead is now alive. And the son saying, father, forgive me against you and God have I sinned. And he says, put a ring on his finger, put a robe around his shoulders. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party because my son has returned. There's this massive party, everyone is invited. Like it is the party of the century, but not like the parties this sun was at before in the distant land. This party is one of true joy and jubilance and excitement and thanksgiving. And at the end of the night, this son is having to excuse himself. He's still got his travel robe on. He's not even had time to take it off. You know, it's just another one put on his shoulders and everyone's putting him sho- on their shoulders and cheering him and he has to excuse himself. I'm so tired from travelling. I just, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I need to go to bed. And we follow, our story follows the son going up to his bedroom, falling on his knees at the side of his bed and weeping. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've been shown grace and mercy. I've been accepted back. I utterly don't deserve it. But I'm back in my family, in my room. He goes to bed that night and in the morning wakes up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. First thing he does, he makes his bed. Do you see the difference? The understanding the grace you have been shown makes. Do you think he would lie down in his bed that night and go, wow, I can't believe I was forgiven. I can't believe I expected to maybe at best be able to be a servant, but no, I've been invited to be a son. Brilliant. I'll ask for the other half of the inheritance. This is great. Oh, quick, you know, I'll call Mary. I've got loads more money to burn. Let's get some beers in. Hey, my dad will have me back anytime. Is that the response that grace produces in us? To go and since do you think that's the response the son would have had? I don't think it is. The grace that he was shown by his father was the thing that caused him to turn from his old life, to say, I now choose, I want, I want to honour my father. I don't want to squander all that he has given me. This is the picture of the father's love for us. Even as Christians who know God's goodness and grace, take our inheritance sometimes and we can squander it. And yet we're welcomed back. Let me ask you a question. What if it had been different? What if the son had lied in bed that night and he reached into his pocket as he's taking off his travel cloak and he suddenly finds, crumpled up, still been there since he arrived in the distant land, Mary's number. And this moment of temptation comes upon him and he thinks, I'll just give her a quick call, see how she's doing. Now if we're honest with ourselves, How many of us have been there and done that? After all the grace and goodness that God has shown us, we then throw it back in his face and we go and mess up all over again. I know for me, this was was my story for years. I had been had my mind so messed up by what is a right decision, a good decision to make, and all these kind of things that I was almost unable to work out, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? I don't know. I'll just see what happens. And for years, uh, I shared a bit of this story, a bit of this testimony, way back in in October last year, um, in our um, series about a culture of grace. talks about years of, of pornography addiction and just sin, confess cycle. God, I know this is wrong. I don't want to do it. I'm so sorry. Thank you, you've forgiven me. I don't deserve it, but thank you, you've forgiven me. I'm so thankful I will never go back to this again because I don't want it. I want to honor you five minutes later. Or maybe just a quick look will be okay. And this cycle round and round and round and round again. And, but I believe in the same way that God, I'm stood here today because of God's rich grace. That is not just grace, but grace upon grace, it says in John. That says, How many times shall I forgive a brother? Seven times? That's pretty good. No, 70 times seven. We have a God whose grace is so rich and whose mercy is so full that if that prodigal son had made that call and gone off to another party, if he'd come back the very next day saying, Father, I can't believe this, but I've done it again. I'm sorry. The father would have thrown his arms around him and said, my son who is dead is alive again. If he did it again, the son who is dead is alive again. And again, and again, and again, and again. There is no plan B to God's grace. He is never going to get to the point where he goes, well, that didn't work. Let's try law again, shall we? It will never come to an end. Now, if you're starting to think to yourself, hold on Colin, this starting to sound like you're preaching a gospel here of grace means a license to sin. It doesn't matter if I sin because God will just forgive me again. If we're starting to get a little bit of a sense of that, great, because that means I'm preaching the message of Paul. This is where we come into Romans chapter six. Paul ends the end of chapter 5. Let's, let's read it, shall we? Um, end of chapter 5, these last couple of verses. He's summing up the law. He says, so why was the law given? In order that men would know clearly what was sinful and their sense of guilt would increase. Only then would they see their need of the grace of God made available to deliver them from the consequences of, the, of their guilt. And God's grace is so much greater than our sin. Because of that grace, sin no longer reigns in our lives. Now, we'll come back to this, but this is that moment of the sun going, I've been shown so much grace, why would I go back to it? Keep that in your minds, resulting in spiritual death. Now, grace reigns in us instead because of God's gift of acceptance that makes us unable to receive the gift of eternal life made possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's basically said the law, all it did was point out our failings, which we already knew, but just makes it all that much worse so that we would know our need of God. John MacArthur, a Baptist pastor, he said, he put things this way. The problem is not a tempter from without, but the traitor within. My sinful nature, and we're going to talk about this more in Romans 7, that does all these things I don't want to do and doesn't do the things that I do want to do. But God is calling us to a radical grace. And this is what then Paul uh, shares next. Now, Paul has been preaching this radical message of grace so much that people have started to say, hold on, you're one of these these people that are saying grace is like a license to sin. Um, Now, actually, this was actually something that was quite common at the time. We read about it in the book of Jude about the false teachers who were were, um, teaching that we have no responsibility before God and all this kind of thing. We can just do what we want and it's all absolutely fine. People were accusing Paul of this. Uh, The theological word for this, by the way, is antinomianism, which is anti, against, and nomos, the law and he's saying just against the law you don't need any obedience anymore whatsoever and this has actually been um, surprisingly kind of rampant throughout the church's history. Um, even in the early 1900s, Rasputin, that Siberian monk and mystic who was uh, you know, the, the counselor to the Romanov family, um, he practiced this. He said um, that the more we sin, those who enjoy sin require the most forgiveness. So a sinner who continues to sin with abandon enjoys each time he repents more of God's forgiving grace than any ordinary sinner. Crazy talk, right? Crazy. And, uh, and yet even, even now, today, we as the modern church, we might refer to this as hyper-grace. Uh, a, a grace that doesn't require repentance or discipleship or following after Jesus. A cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it. This might sound extreme, we might go, well, we know that's not the case, we would never do that. I mean, hyper grace, is license to sin, you know, who wants to come round to my house feeling like a drunken party so that God will forgive us more? <laughs> of course we're not going to do that, that's never going to be upon our notices, do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but so many of us can nevertheless fall into this trap. If the highway of holiness is this straight path, narrow way before us, then on one side is the pit of legalism that we can fall into that says, I need to earn God's favour. I need to do right by God to try and to earn his favour in my own strength. And on the other side is grace and license to sin of, oh, I, it doesn't really matter, does it? God will forgive me anyway. And if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us could even just to a little bit make light... Of our sins or our decisions, or something like that, and go, Well, this is not too bad. It's that okay. Well, God will forgive me if anyway, you know. And we become flippant about this costly grace. And Paul vehemently denies this. He says, By no means. Absolutely not. And that's what I'm saying as well this morning. This picture of the, of the prodigal son. I am not saying that that means we should just go, Oh, God will forgive us anyway. Let's just carry on. By no means. But ironically, both these forms, these two pits, legalism on one side and libertinism or antinomianism on the other side, they're kind of both forms of legalism in that they are both, in their extreme, seeking to earn our righteousness through God's law apart from Christ. One side, through good works, to earn it, and through the other side, sinning more, to earn it. Both are apart from Christ. Both highlight our sin and lead to death. This is what Paul says, By no means. Paul goes on to explain and uses this picture of baptism to explain what the answer is. Not being in Christ means we're more alive to sin, excuse me, but that in Christ we die to sin. And he uses this picture of baptism, and I haven't got time to go into it right now, but I'll sum it up really quickly. That um, Paul uses baptism as a participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Sunday and Headlam put it this way in their uh, commentary on Romans. They say that plunge beneath the running waters was like a death. The moment's pause while they swept on overhead was like a burial. The standing erect once more in air and sunlight was a species of resurrection. But Paul does not speak of baptism figuratively or symbolically, he talks about it as a literal. Reality, a spiritual reality of what happens when we are, we are baptised into Jesus. Verse 3 puts it this way, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? This passage, in this passage, we also see that baptism is not an optional extra. But for Paul, it was absolutely one with this, this moment of salvation and, uh, and, sanctific- and justification, sorry, of this coming together and, and not something that would follow on some point maybe if you felt like it. Uh, absolutely essential. Good thing then, isn't it, that we've got a baptism service coming up on July the 16th. If you need to be baptised, then you can uh, put your name down. We'll talk about that and all that baptism represents. But Paul ends his teaching on baptism by explaining how in verse 10, the death that Christ died, he died to sin Ending its power and paying the sinner's debt once and for all. And from there leads into our key verse this morning, verse 11. I think it's taken us a while to get to our key verse, but here we go. In that same way, in the same way Jesus has died once and for all to sin, in that same way, count yourselves then dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love the King James puts it this way. Reckon yourselves indeed dead to sin. So in that same way that Jesus died to sin, we count ourselves. That means we reckon ourselves, consider ourselves, regard ourselves, think of ourselves, set down as a matter of account, conclude and calculate ourselves dead to sin once and for all, but alive to God once and for all. We have died to sin. Our old lives, the people that we were, everything, the worst things we ever did, everything we're ashamed of, everything that was ever done to us, all of the things that were messed up and mistakes and all the things that we feel guilt about and wish that nobody would ever know about and hope that, you know, they would never find out about. All of these things are not just skimmed over, not made better, not improved, but finished done away with dead died and buried and we don't get an improved version of life we get brand new life brand new life the old flesh the old life the old person I used to be we've been set free from we've also been set free from the penalty of sin through death and the penalty that was death Death, the penalty, has been paid because Christ already died to pay it for us and in him we died to sin too. (coughs) I am supposed to die, be dead to sin then. This is the the thing that we, we might be thinking about. We look around. Everyone else is dead to sin. Is it just me then? No, it's not. In fact, the Bible says that if we were to say that there's no sin in us, then we, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. You know? There's still sin. But why? Because Jesus has, has offered this death that we can step into, death of sin. We still have our free will. We still have this, the flesh. We still have our earthly bodies and all this kind of thing that's going to push against what God has done. And God won't come against our free will. He won't intervene at our free will. But here is the message we need to hear this morning. That we no longer have to sin. Yes. Right. Amen. Let's just let this sink in for a moment. We no longer have to sin. Sin's control has been broken. Now to really understand this, we need to look at these two different kinds of death or two different kinds of crucifixion that are talked about in the New Testament. The first here is in Romans 6.6. 6. Our old self was crucified with him. The other is in Galatians 5.24. We, ourselves, have crucified the sinful nature. The first is something that happened to us, our death to sin through identification with Christ. The second is something that we have done, our death to self, through imitation of Christ. John Stott puts it this way in his commentary on Romans, which is just phenomenal. On the one hand, we have been crucified with Christ, but on the other, we have Crucified, that means decisively repudiated our sinful nature with all its desires, so that every day we renew this attitude by taking up our cross and following Christ to crucifixion. The first is a legal death, a death to the penalty and guilt of sin. The second, a moral death, the death to the death to the power of sin. The first belongs to the past. It is a unique and unrepeatable. The second belongs to the present and is repeatable, even continuous, I died to sin in Christ once, I die to self like Christ daily. Isn't that just an amazing picture? And the thing is we need both. uh, Theological words for these are justification and sanctification. We've not got time to go into those now, but this picture, can you imagine if you just had one? Imagine we never died in Christ to sin, the power of sin was never defeated, but now we're just trying to crucify ourselves every day. Uh That's law. That's trying to make ourselves right to God. Let's pretend that we didn't have that one and we just had this one over here. We died to sin in Christ, but now we just do whatever we want. That's antinomianism. That's, That's license to sin. We need both. We need to know we have died to Christ once and for all and our old life is gone and finished. And then we need to live out the good of that every day. And this is the highway of holiness that we are called to live on. Amen. Yeah. We might use this example that I once was a child. I am not a child now. No matter how much I might want to be or try to be or act like, I will never be a child ever again. It is gone. That part of my life is gone. I can act like a child. My wife is looking at me going, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. I can act like a child, but I am not a child. What I need to do now is reckon myself an adult consider myself an adult and live from the good of the fact that I am no longer a child and act like it but the grace in God is the thing that enables us to this I know this is a big topic and we're going to have a I want to give a lot of time to really kind of sink our teeth into this and give you guys time to discuss it and let this really marinate in us because this is a there's a lot in here um but we need both pastor Colin put it this way Christ died for all, but the merits of his death have to be appropriated by faith in him. Reckon yourself then. This is about the battle for our minds. Proverbs 23, 7, for as a per- says, for as a person thinks, so is he. Or as a man thinks in his heart, so does he become. Margaret Thatcher. I've I've used this quote before, no matter what you think of her, this quote is fantastic. Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become your character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. What we think, we become. Joyce Meyer, in her book, Battlefield for the Mind, puts puts it this way. When you begin to see God's plan for you in your thinking, you will begin to walk in it. The devil is going to try and convince us with everything that he has got that we are still in bondage to sin. Your flesh will still want to be satisfied. But because of what Jesus has done, we can now declare, no, that is not who I am anymore. And I do not need to be dragged away by you. I am standing firm upon the rock of Christ. I once knew a lady who had lots of money in the bank. She was an older lady, retired lady. She had loads of money, very wealthy, but she would never spend it. She was always worried that she didn't have enough uh, and had such a poverty mindset um, that even though she was very wealthy, she couldn't enjoy it. She considered herself poor. She had the money there, but she didn't consider herself wealthy. And so she lived in her poverty. We are to recall, to ponder, to grasp to register these truths until they are so integral to our mindset that a return to the old life is unthinkable. John, stop. So we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. We are also to reckon ourselves alive to God. Now, this is really important. We're not just focusing on the dead to sin part. If I said right now, don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think about a pink elephant. What are we all thinking about, a pink elephant? Think about sin no matter what you do. Don't sin, don't sin. It's, it's just, it just creates this picture in our mind of, oh, what am I supposed to be avoiding? Again, which is more points towards law. We need to also have this, this being alive to God. If we were to come back to our picture of the son, on that night he's come home, he reaches into his pocket and he finds the number for Mary. He not only tears it up and throws it into the corner, he immediately runs downstairs to his father, throws his arms around him, and says, Father, forgive me, even after all you've done. There was a moment where I was tempted to make a call. Forgive me, I don't want anything to come between us. He's not just dead to sin, but he's also alive to the relationship he has with his father. To quote F.F. Bruce, another commentary on Romans. um, I'd really recommend this one, it's excellent if you want a commentary on Romans. The Lord demanded obedience but grace supplies the power to obey. Or again, to quote Pastor Colin, God's grace does not give us license to live careless, sinful lives. He gives us grace to enable us to live in the ways that please him. Now the devil is gonna want the absolute opposite of God's word. He's gonna say, you're alive to sin, but dead to God. You don't hear him. He's upset with you. You can't come to him. Shame, turn away withdraw but sin (coughs) sin will satisfy it'll give you that kick it will give you that satisfaction looking for it will help you feel welcome or wanted or needed or valued or loved or whatever it is that you're looking for alive to sin dead to god no this is not what the word says we are to be we say no to the plans of the enemy we need to hear this god has no plan b to grace you are still loved, still accepted, but this time, and maybe and there's some people in this room need to hear this, you've, you've, like me, time and time again, just felt so captive to sin. I don't understand how to get free, I don't want it. I don't want it, it's this almost compulsion. I don't want it, but I keep returning to it. You need to know, reckon yourself dead, but also alive to sin, but alive to God. His love for you, his closeness, his grace for you. And in that reckoning, we need to have that moment where we sit, and this is for all of us, where we sit and we go, God, Jesus, all that you have afforded me and won for me, all of your grace that has brought me, like that, that prodigal son sat on his bed that night. Thank you, I've been, I've been brought back in. I've been invited back in as a son. This is where I want to stay. That knowing it, that it becoming real for us in our thinking, in our understanding, in our character, that is the place where we need to come, where we find the power in our faith in God by grace to say no to the power of sin. I think it's really important, just in the last couple of minutes and then we'll have uh, some time to do this around tables, to also recognise that this is not meaning that there is no um, uh, discipleship in God, that there is no discipline in God. Sometimes we might think, well, the man who's having having an affair has his affair exposed. That's the wrath of God. No, that's the mercy of God. The mercy of God exposes it so it can be dealt with. The wrath of God would be to turn from him and allow him to stay in his sin. Because there is nothing worse than separation from God and our hearts becoming hardened and more and more and more hardened. God's mercy and grace can look painful sometimes because he loves us, he will discipline us. So I just want to put that out there as well. We need to get God's picture of of the goodness he's got for us and what what that looks like. Dallas Willard said this, I'm just going to finish with this. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practising the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practising, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new, grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. This might be a time where we would commonly like have a a response time where we might all stand and, and pray and dedicate ourselves to God and allow God to speak to us. And that's what we're gonna do, but we're gonna do it in a different way. God's been speaking about the importance of this about being family, about being real with one another, about having fellowship. These verses of confess your sins one to another and pray for another that you may be healed. This happens here. It doesn't happen from a platform. And God's been speaking about the need for us to do this together. And so wanna give time now for you in in your tables or at home, wherever you might be. And we've got some discussion questions on the table to respond to this, to reflect, what is God saying to me. Don't feel you have to answer all these questions. Just there might be one that stands out to you. I need, let's, let's talk about this. Uh, and also around your tables. JD, would you mind bringing up the communion? We're going to take communion as well. Because communion represents this death that we have in Jesus. It represents the death that Jesus died to the power of sin. Breaking sin's power for us. But also in it this morning, as we take it, we are declaring his death represents for us and us in it as well so jesus in the same way that you took bread and you broke it you said this is my body that has been given for you do this in remembrance of me and then you took the cup and after you blessed it you said this is my blood the blood of the new covenant that's poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins take eat drink do this every time remember me and proclaim my death until i come Jesus, thank you, Lord, this morning, as we do that around our tables, that we proclaim that you have enabled us to be dead to sin and alive to you. And Jesus, I just pray for every single one of us, the next time we are tempted, there's any temptation to sin, Father, we will remember the costliness of it to you. We would remember what your grace cost and Jesus we we Lord we would soberly thankfully respond and say no to sin. We would turn to you and say yes Jesus to you. Reckon yourselves then dead to sin, alive to God. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you.